Section 25 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 25. Selected Works by George Crabb. 1754-1832. George Crabb was born at Attleboro in Suffolk, the son of a customs officer. He received a fair education for a village lad, and at the age of fourteen was apprenticed to a country surgeon. He early showed an inclination toward letters, versifying much while a schoolboy. In 1778 he abandoned his profession of medicine, in which he was not successful, and came up to London with a few pounds and some manuscript in his pocket, determined to make his way in literature. He met with the usual reverses of a beginner without reputation or patronage, and soon was desperately in need of money. He wrote many letters to well-known people without response. In his extremity, he applied to Burke, who, although a stranger, received him most kindly into his own house, gave him advice and criticism, recommended him to Dodsley, the publisher, and introduced him to many notable men of the day, among them Reynolds, Johnson, and Fox. During this time Crabb wrote The Library and The Village, and also at the suggestion of his patron, qualified himself for the ministry. He took holy orders in 1782, and became shortly after chaplain to the Duke of Rutland, subsequently he held a number of small livings procured for him by his friends the last of these the rectory of trowbridge given him in eighteen thirteen he held until his death in eighteen thirty two the village published in seventeen eighty three made the poet's reputation his next work the newspaper published two years later was much inferior for twenty years thereafter he wrote and destroyed vast quantities of manuscript not until 1809 did he publish again. The parish register coming out in that year was even more successful than his first work. In 1810 appeared The Borough, containing his best work, Tales in Verse following in 1812. With Tales of the Hall appearing in 1819, he took leave of the public. Crabbe is an important link in the transition period between the poetry of the 18th and the 19th centuries. Men were growing tired of the artificiality and conventional frigidity of the current verse in the hands of the imitators of Pope. A feeling for change was in the air, manifested in the incipient romantic movement and in what is called the return to nature. Goldsmith was one of the first to lead the way back to simplicity, but he enveloped in a tender, somewhat sentimental idealism whatever he touched. Then came Thompson, with his generalizations of nature, Cowper, a more faithful painter of rural scenes, and Burns, who sang of the thought and feeling of the common man. The work of these poets was a reaction against the poetry of town life, too apt to become artificial with its subject. Yet, being poets and singers, they expressed not so much the reality as what lies behind, its beauty and its tenderness. To give the right perspective to this return to nature, there was needed a man who should paint life as it is, in its naked realism, unveiled by the glamour of poetic vision. 
crabbe was this man the most uncompromising realist he led poetry back to human life on its stern dark side born and bred among the poor he described as no one else in the whole range of english verse has done the sordid existence among which he had grown up he dispelled all illusions about rural life and dealt the death-blow to the corydons and phyllises of pastoral poetry he showed that the poor man can be more immoral and even more unprincipled than the rich because his higher spiritual nature is hopelessly dwarfed in the desperate struggle to keep the wolf from the door he supplied harrowing texts to the social economist he is a gloomy poet especially in the first part of his work for he paints principally the shadows that hung over the lives of the lowly he does not deal with that life imaginatively as wordsworth and burns do but realistically narrating with photographic accuracy what he saw he excels in graphic delineations of external facts but is also a powerful painter of the passions especially the more violent ones such as remorse and despair sir eustace gray is a masterful portrayal of madness crabbe has at all times been denied the name of poet there is little music in his verse little of that singing quality that goes with all true poetry his versification is often slipshod and careless his lack of taste and artistic feeling shows itself not only in the manner but also in the matter of his work he dwells by preference on the unlovely he does not choose his details as an artist would he is too minute too like those dutch painters who bestow as much care on the refuse as on the burnished platters of their interiors and again he is trivial or too literal but the steady admiration his poetry has excited in men of the most different tastes for several generations shows that it has deeper qualities the truth is that his mean and squalid details are not mere heaps of unrelated things nor irrelevant to his story they are not even mere scenery they are part of the history in general the tragedy of human hearts and souls and owe their validity as poetic material and their power of interesting us to their being part of the influences that bear on the history scott had crabbe's poems read aloud in his last illness horace smith called him pope in worsted stockings jane austen said she could fancy being mrs crabbe cardinal newman read the tales of the hall with extreme delight in their first appearance and fifty years later still thought well of them these different opinions testify that whatever the shortcomings of crabbe as craftsman the earnestness and genuineness of his work give him a secure place among english poets isaac ashford from the parish register next to these ladies but in not allied a noble peasant isaac ashford died noble he was contemning all things mean his truth unquestioned and his soul serene of no man's presence isaac felt afraid at no man's question isaac looked dismayed shame knew he not he dreaded no disgrace truth simple truth was written in his face yet while the serious thought his soul approved cheerful he seemed and gentleness he loved to bliss domestic he his heart resigned and with the firmest had the fondest mind were others joyful he looked smiling on 
and gave allowance where he needed none. Good he refused with future ill to buy, nor knew a joy that caused reflection sigh. A friend to virtue his unclouded breast no envy stung, no jealousy distressed. Bane of the poor, it wounds their weaker mind to miss one favor which their neighbors find. Yet far was he from stoic pride removed. He felt humanely, and he warmly loved. I marked his action when his infant died, and his old neighbor for offense was tried. The still years, stealing down that furrowed cheek, spoke pity plainer than the tongue can speak. If pride were his, t'was not their vulgar pride, who in their base contempt the great deride. Nor pride in learning, though my clerk agreed if fate should call him, Ashford might succeed nor pride in rustic skill, although he knew none his superior, and his equals few. But if that spirit in his soul had place, it was the jealous pride that shuns disgrace, a pride in honest fame, by virtue gained, in sturdy boys to virtuous labors trained. Pride in the power that guards his country's coast, and all that Englishmen enjoy and boast. Pride in a life that slander's tongue defied, in fact a noble passion, misnamed pride he had no party's rage no sectary's whim christian and countryman was all with him true to his church he came no sunday shower kept him at home in that important hour nor his firm feet could one persuading sect by the strong glare of their new light direct on hope in mine own sober light i gaze but should be blind and lose it in your blaze in times severe, when many a sturdy swain felt it his pride, his comfort to complain, Isaac their wants would soothe, his own would hide, and feel in that his comfort and his pride. I feel his absence in the hours of prayer, and view his seat, and sigh for Isaac there. I see no more those white locks thinly spread round the bald polish of that honored head, no more that awful glance on playful white, compelled to kneel and tremble at the sight to fold his fingers all in dread the while till mr ashford softened to a smile no more that meek and suppliant look in prayer nor the pure faith to give it force are there but he is blessed and i lament no more a wise good man contented to be poor the parish workhouse and apothecary from the village Theirs is yon house that holds the parish poor, Whose walls of mud scarce bear the broken door. There where the putrid vapors flagging play, And the dull wheel hums doleful through the day, There children dwell, who know no parents' care. Parents who know no children's love dwell there, Heartbroken matrons on their joyless bed, Forsaken wives, and mothers never wed dejected widows and unheeded tears, and crippled age with more than childhood fears, the lame, the blind, and for the happiest they, the moping idiot and the madman gay. Here, too, the sick their final doom receive, here brought amid the scenes of grief to grieve, where the loud groans from some sad chamber flow, mixed with the clamors of the crowd below. Here, sorrowing, they each kindred sorrow scan, and the cold charities of man to man, whose laws indeed for ruined age provide, and strong compulsion plucks the scrap from pride, 
and still that scrap is bought with many a sigh and pride embitters what it can't deny say ye oppressed by some fantastic woes some jarring nerve that baffles your repose who press the downy couch while slaves advance with timid eye to read the distant glance who with sad prayers and weary doctor tease to name the nameless ever new disease who with mock patience dire complaints endure which real pain and that alone can cure how would ye bear in real pain to lie despised neglected left alone to die how would ye bear to draw your latest breath where all that's wretched paves the way for death such is that room which one rude beam divides and naked rafters form the sloping sides where the vile bands that bind the thatch are seen and lath and mud are all that lie between save one dull pane that coarsely patched gives way to the rude tempest yet excludes the day here on a matted flock with dust o'erspread the drooping wretch reclines his languid head for him no hand the cordial cup applies or wipes the tear that stagnates in his eyes no friends with soft discourse his pain beguile or promise hope till sickness wears a smile but soon a loud and hasty summon calls shakes the thin roof and echoes round the walls anon a figure enters quaintly neat all pride and business bustle and conceit with looks unaltered by these scenes of woe with speed that entering speaks his haste to go he bids the gazing throng around him fly and carries fate and physic in his eye a potent quack long versed in human ills who first insults the victim whom he kills whose murderous hand a drowsy bench protect and whose most tender mercy is neglect paid by the parish for attendance here he wears contempt upon his sapient sneer in haste he seeks the bed where misery lies impatience marked in his averted eyes and some habitual queries hurried o'er without reply he rushes to the door his drooping patient long inured to pain and long unheeded knows remonstrance vain he ceases now the feeble help to crave of man and silent sinks into the grave End of section twenty five